0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today we have Tom Conrad with us. He is here from Pandora. He's been at Pandora for many years, actually since 2004, and he's the Chief Technology Officer. Now, you might wonder what that means. He is in charge of product management, user interface design, software development, and network operations. And before being at Pandora, Tom was the VP of Engineering at Kenemea. And he also worked at Berkeley Systems. In fact, some of you might have played with one of the games he was involved with, uh, You Don't Know Jack. Before that, he was at Relevance Technologies at Documentum. And you probably remember Pets.com and Apple. These are all on his resume. So he's got a fabulous story to share with us today. Welcome, Tom.
1: Thank you so much. I think I've got to do something here to... Hey, look at that. Um, thank you so much, Tina. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, originally, our, our CEO, uh, Joe Kennedy, had, had been scheduled to uh, be your guest today, and he sends his regrets, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to fill his, uh, to fill his shoes. Um, when Tina and I talked a little bit about kind of uh, what we might do here today, um, uh, we went a little bit through the, uh, the, the history that she just enumerated, and, um, and we thought maybe it would be interesting to talk a little bit about all of the things that I've, I've done over the years. Um, and so it's been fun for me preparing a little bit. I've been trying to d- distill down some of the stories from, from all of those places, and 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 try to understand what it what it means. And and the first thing that amazed me is that I'm actually in my twentieth year of um, of working um, uh, in technology. Uh, I got my start in in 1991 working at at Apple on the Macintosh. Um, and for 15 of those years, I've been involved in in what you might call a startup. So I've had I've really made a career out of out of working for startups. Um, I'm a, uh, I'm a product guy. Um, uh, which means that, that all of the jobs I've held have somehow been related to you know, designing, engineering, delivering um, the 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 solution that the the company that I, that I worked with was providing, and um, that's really kind of fundamental to my DNA. So all of the stories that I'll share are kind of from that perspective. Um, uh, over those twenty years, I've worked for for six really interesting companies and 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 hundreds of brilliant people, um, and. Uh, uh, so you know i I thought i'd just share some of the lessons that i 've learned you know as i as I went through that process, I realized that there were sort of seven key lessons, which I guess is slightly less than three a year, um, which just seems kind of disappointing um, on balance but um uh uh so I thought we'd uh, we'd spend a little time and, and talk about those lessons and 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 use them as a tool for for a little bit of storytelling about my background um, uh one thing, is, as I talk, you know, I'm sure as you have people come through and talk to you about entrepreneurship in general, many of the, of the people that, that uh, come and stand before you are founders. Well, uh, I've never been a founder, so I'll, I'm going to tell lots and lots of stories about, about small companies and, and the things that they do, but it's, it will always be from the frame of um, uh, uh, an employee. I'm, oftentimes, I was an early employee. Um, I've been fortunate enough to have leadership roles at many of the companies, but, but I've never done the founder thing, and, and I think... Um, uh, you know, I've had you know uh, an unbelievably fun and rewarding career, and, and um, uh, I think sometimes we forget that that you don't have to be the person who uh, who kicks something off to to be able to um, to have a really exciting experience. Um, so, uh, you know, to start here, uh, I think as I thought about all of the 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 work that I've done over the years, by far the most Important thing that I've learned is that I succeed when I'm passionate about the company, the product, some aspect of of, of what it is that I, I do every day. And and for me, this really all started um, when I was um, well, I was 15 years old when the original Macintosh came out in 1984. And I remember like it was yesterday watching the Super Bowl and seeing that 1984 you know ad with the runner come on. And um, kind of being teased by this, you know, uh, this promise that that you know uh, Apple was about to do something um, that would make ni- 1984 not like 1984. And um, uh, as soon as they started to tell the world a little bit about, about what they intended with the Macintosh, I was wrapped. I mean, I, I I spent the entire next year pouring over every piece of documentation, and I still have these tattered um, you know, product brochures from 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 that era. Um, that I, you know, I looked at endlessly. And, and that really began my love affair, not just with computers and um, uh, um, the whole world of, of, of technology, but really specifically with Apple Computer. And it's not at all an exaggeration to say that I, I went to college so I could work for Apple. Um, and uh, uh, so I went to the University of Michigan, um, studied computer engineering, um, and focused all of my energy on trying to get myself into a place where I could be an intern at Apple after my, my junior year, which is about the time that they started um, taking um, interns. And um, uh, the summer uh, before I, I went to Apple, um, another guy from the, um, not from the engineering college, but from the computer science program, and I was a computer engineer, and there was a bit of like snobism about computer science versus computer engineering at Michigan. And, and this guy... Um, Ran the uh, the like the the computing lab for the computer science program, and I was one of the the the, the geeks that ran the computing lab for the computer engineering um, uh, program, and so there was a real rivalry there, nerd fight kind of thing, and um, uh, and I remember thinking that this oh here's this guy and he got this internship at Apple, you're ahead of me, and you know oh he's not that impressive, he's just this computer science guy, and blah blah blah, well turns out that that guy was Tony Fidel, who later invented the iPod. Um, uh, so uh, be careful <laughs> who you're dismissive of. Um, but fortunate enough for me, the next year um, I sent a letter off to Apple saying that I really wanted to be an intern, and I remember this, this letter um, said something like I wanted to change the world through technology. So I always wore my passion for these kinds of solutions on my, on my sleeve, and I frankly, I think I got the job that summer because of this goofy, over-the-top um, you know, letter that I sent. Not even email, it was a, an actual typewritten letter. Um, and uh, uh, I had a great experience at Apple, which we'll talk about a little bit but, um, later. But, uh, you know, it was in large part a wonderful experience because I so loved the product, and I so loved the company, and I was so passionate about the entire thing. And, um, and I tell you, I've done lots of things over the years, um, different kinds of companies um, in different kinds of product categories. Um, some have been successful, some have been catastrophic, um, and, but the ones that I look back on with the most enthusiasm, I have the best memories from, um, I'm the most glad that I was involved in, are the ones that I was really passionate about. And um, you know, One example is Pandora. So the company that, that I work for today is the internet music service, internet radio service, Pandora. Um, and uh, I've been there for the last six years. Um, so a pretty big chunk of that 20 years, I guess. And, um, And the story that led me to Pandora was that I had, um, in uh, 2001, after the the bubble had burst, we'll get to talk about that, too, in a little bit, um, uh, I was looking for work. And um, uh, there wasn't anything in consumer software. There was no new internet companies. Um, It was kind of nuclear winter, if you remember that period. It was incredibly difficult to find any kind of work. and I found this enterprise software company um, uh, that was just getting going. It was founded by the guys who had started WebLogic, and so they had this great pedigree around um, creating enterprise solutions. Um, and uh, I had spent three and a half years there. And um, as, as, as much as I, I loved the people, um, I wasn't terribly passionate about the product. Um, it was, you know, a harbor in a storm for me while the entire industry kind of um, redesigned itself. And um, towards the end of that period I I started thinking about wanting to get back into doing something for consumers. Something that really connected with um, my own personal passions. And I started thinking about, like, well, what are the problems in my life that I'd like to see solved with technology? And I had just gone through the process of of um, ripping my CD collection. I had like a thousand CDs. I have been passionate about music since I was a little kid. Um, you, know, I, you know, I've always enjoyed nothing more than getting, you know, someone in front of my stereo and playing music for them. And um, uh, uh, I started thinking about, well, gosh, this, this, there's this opportunity now that we've kind of encoded all of our music digitally to, um, to do interesting things with it, to, you know, make sure that people know about new music when it's released or. Introduce people to other people who share similar musical interests, or find new music that that you'll love based on on the things that you're listening to today. And um, so I uh, I started thinking about these ideas, these ideas of putting together some kind of a music um, destination on the web that would make recommendations and connect people together. And um, uh, in talking about this a little bit, I got introduced to um, to this little company in Oakland called Savage Beast. Um, company had about eight full-time employees, um, and they were looking for, well, the job description on the website when I met them said, engineering manager. Um, By the time that I arrived for the interview, they decided to upgrade that to VP of engineering, because I think they were looking at my resume saying, well, you know, if we're going to hire this guy, he probably, um, given his background, wants to be a vice president of our little eight-person startup. And, um, uh, And as much as I appreciated the upgrade in the title... The reality was they needed an engineering manager. They needed somebody to hire a bunch of engineers and to manage a schedule and to hit the date and repeat over and over and over again. They had a, uh, a, a pair of brilliant founders, including somebody who um, uh, was a technologist and, and 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 had a great technology vision. Um, and um, uh, I got the job offer from them. And um, Turned them down, and I turned them down because it didn't feel like the right career opportunity for me. I didn't really want to be the engineering manager. I wanted to um, uh, have a much larger kind of purview with respect to the product, and i um, i didn't want um, I didn't want to work for. I wanted to work for a company that was doing something for consumers, and and Savage Beast was making uh, just recommendation infrastructure for other other brands. And um, so those are like a B2B solution. So they'd sell this recommendation engine to like Best Buy. And Best Buy would use it in kiosks uh, in their stores. And, um, and so I thought, well, gosh, it's, it's not the right kind of product exactly. It's not the right kind of career move. And so I turned them down. But a funny thing happened. Every day, I thought about this little company and this great group of people and this opportunity to use the, the start that they had. Um, which was something they called the Music Genome Project, and the Music Genome Project was this magic thing that um, they'd been developing for, well, for four years. Um, and, uh, And the idea is that they have a team of musicians who came to the office every day, listened to music one song at a time, and analyzed each piece of music along as many as 400 different musicological dimensions. So not just are there guitars, but what kind of guitars, how are the guitars played, what role does the guitar play in the entire kind of overall mechanics of the song. And by doing that, the company ended up with a kind of fingerprint for every song that flowed through this process. And anyway, we've been doing it for years, and so there were, you know, tens of thousands of songs now, almost a million songs, that have, have gone through this process. And I was so fascinated by the potential for that, and I just couldn't sleep at night thinking about how to tie together some of the ideas that I had about this consumer service um, with this incredible uh, technique of the Music Genome Project. Uh, about a month passes, and they call me up, and they, and they say, again, you know, we have talked to some other people, and we think, really, you might be the, the right guy for the job. Um, and uh, I said, that's funny. I can't, I can't sleep at night because I'm thinking about this so much. Um, and, uh, uh, and I said, are you still kind of focused on this B2B thing? And they said, yeah, we're still focused on this B2B thing. I said, are you still looking for kind of a glorified engineering manager? And they said, yeah, we're still looking for a glorified engineering manager. Uh, and I said, you still want me to take a 40% pay cut? And they said, yeah, I still want you to take a 40% pay cut. I said, sold. Sold. Uh, uh, and that was definitely a moment of just following my passions for, for, uh, for solving this problem and trying to come together with this team to figure, figure it out. And um, a kind of miraculous thing happened. Uh, I arrived at the company, um, and two weeks later Joe uh, Kennedy, who's our CEO, started. And um, the company raised a little bit of money, um, and uh, suddenly we had a new mandate to create a consumer service rather than this B2B thing, so I'm like, ah, halfway there. I'm halfway to the job that I really want, and now we get to build a consumer service. Another few weeks goes by, and my phone rings, and it's the founder, CTO, technologist, product guy who had hired me, and he said, you know, I've got a new baby. I've been at this for four years. I'm really kind of a B2B guy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave, and uh, and I think you should take over running the, the product organization. So in just you know six weeks, I went from accepting a job I didn't a job description I didn't really love, and a, working on a product that wasn't a perfect fit. To suddenly, I had exactly the job I wanted, and um, exactly uh, uh, the uh, the product opportunity. And 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 ultimately, uh, we spent about the next six months um, doing the work that that led to led to Pandora, which I'll tell you a little bit more about in a minute. But lest you lest you think that that my enthusiasm for passion driven decision making when it comes to um, career choices is limited just to the things that um, uh, at least seemingly have a happy ending. Things are pretty, pretty happy for Pandora these days. Um, uh, let me tell you one more story about being passionate. So I um, how did this happen? So I had worked at Apple and then I had worked on this video game You Don't Know Jack and um, somehow I got it in my head that the hard computer science must not be in consumer software. It must be in kind of back-end infrastructure. And so I had an opportunity to be the first employee at um, a company called Relevance Technologies. And Relevance was working on a um, uh, kind of matching search technology that would allow you to um, search through huge um, uh, databases of documents and, and pull things out based on meaning. and. Um, so I came aboard and, 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 and led a small team there that was responsible for all of the front-end components of, of, this, of this. And, and we, um, uh, after about just a year, uh, we sold it to Documentum, which was a great outcome for everyone. Documentum was this big, successful East Bay company, had all kinds of resources. They had been traditionally a, cl- a client-server company, and they really needed people who were thinking about the Internet and the Web, and they brought us in for this very strategic Goal in mind, and um, I spent uh, I spent about a year there um, uh, trying to figure out enterprise software, trying to get excited about document management for big corporations. I mean, the kinds of things Documentum does is like makes software so that Boeing can manage all of the you know regulation-related paperwork for for creating safe aircraft. Like it was very very hard for me to personally become invested in this 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 problem, and uh, my phone rings, and. Um, uh, it was the CEO of Berkeley Systems, the people who made You Don't Know Jack, which was one of the great um, kind of uh, uh, experiences of my career to that point. And um, uh, she said, you know, we're putting the You Don't Know Jack team back together, and we're going to, um, we're going to attack something in the Internet space. And this is when, you know, E-Toys was, uh, you know, we had just gone public. and was worth a, you know, $9 billion or something. It was a very crazy kind of frothy time. And, notably, I had just gotten a new puppy. And I love this puppy. And this puppy was like the absolute center of my life. I mean, I had done nothing but work for the, the first, you know, many years of, of my career. And uh, suddenly, it just felt like I had a whole other reason to get out of bed in the morning. It was this puppy. And, she, and so this CEO, Julie Wainwright, says to me, she says, and the company is going to be for people with pets. We're going to, you know, it's a $28 billion e-commerce opportunity. And... Um, Uh, And we want you to come and run engineering. It's called Pets.com." Yeah. I nearly destroyed the U.S. economy by myself. (laughs) Um, uh, And, uh, and, you know, I had said that the relevance was um, uh, about a year old when it got acquired by Documentum. And you guys all understand how stock options and these things work. I I had a bunch of unvested shares in Documentum, and I said, keep your shares. I'm going to go, you know, make the Internet safe for pet food. And um, uh, went off, and uh, uh, I try not to do the math, but it was millions of dollars that, my, you know, that I walked away from when I was 28 years old um, to be able to go pursue this experience with uh, Pets.com. And, um, and it was a disaster. I mean, it was a glorious disaster, right? I mean, there were, um, you know, the whole company from beginning to end um, was 18 months. When we founded it, um, we... Uh, we got it funded, we took it public, and we drove it off the cliff um, all in just 18 months. And um, uh, I'll tell you, I, uh, I still count it as one of the great experiences of my career. I learned so much. I worked with the most amazing people. Um, uh, if you really wanted to get me going, we could have a conversation about whether or not it's fair that Pets.com is the poster child for all the excesses of that period. Because mostly what I remember is working my tail off trying to, uh, trying to make that, that company work. I mean, it was definitely many, many you know, 120 hours, weeks, um, and a lot of bad decisions along the way. But, um, uh, but I don't regret that for a moment, and I'm certain that I wouldn't be at Pandora today doing the things that I'm doing if I hadn't been at test.com. And that experience is absolutely foundational to everything that I've done since and, and probably everything that I will ever do in, in technology. Um, and so again, I think it's one of those those examples where I think you follow your passions, good things happen. Um, and I don't intend to spend 15 minutes on the remaining six lessons. <laughs> um, but, uh, but let's talk about a- another one that I, 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 I learned, was fortunate enough to learn early. Um, so I went to work at Apple, and uh, uh, Apple is this really remarkable place because it is absolutely filled with the smartest human beings that I have ever encountered. I, uh, I don't know how they let me in, but it was a, you know, a really great honor to be able to work with these people. Um, but I will tell you something about Apple, at least in terms of how it affected me. Um, Apple is a place that cherishes um, kind of Renaissance thinkers, people that are good at lots of things. Um, the people that are most celebrated in the company culture can write software and design user interfaces and have brilliant marketing insights and have a great eye for design. And uh, and so, in the four years that I was at Apple, um, I wrote about 500 lines of code and dabbled in a million things. Um, I was, you know, uh, miles wide and about a quarter of an inch deep when when I finished my time at Apple and decided to move on to something else. Um, uh, I wasn't great at anything. Um, And I went to Berkeley Systems um, and and, um, together there worked with a team that that created this video game, You Don't Know Jack. which was a little bit of a, a phenomenon in the late 90s. It was kind of this irreverent quiz show party game. And um, Berkeley Systems was completely different than Apple from the standpoint that everybody knew exactly what their job was and your job was to be great at it. And In my case, it was to run the, the little development team that wrote all the software for You Don't Know Jack. so the sound mixers and the gameplay and the graphics engine. But it was not my job to design the gameplay or to design the the look and feel of the game or to write the questions or to figure out what the packaging should be like or what the go to market like i was you know I was welcome to occasionally chime in with a suggestion or a thought, but it was very, very clear that the thing that was going to make me successful at Berkeley Systems was being the best software engineer that I could possibly be, and to lead that team you know um, uh really effectively and um uh so I really focused on that for my years there. And thank goodness, because I wouldn't have been a software engineer, not really, if it hadn't been for that experience. And so you know, I, I think the, the lesson for me of that period is it's really important to be great at something and to know what that thing is and to really invest in it. You're going to have all kinds of opportunities to go wide. But look for opportunities to go deep. Um, uh, at least for me, it made, it made all the difference. Um, so let's see, um, you know, one of the things, having done startups for 15 years that, that um, I think has been true of every moment of success um, that I've ever been involved in is that, that focus is maybe – if you, if you can take anything away from this, I, I, would, I, would, I would challenge you as you think about your ideas for the companies that you'll undoubtedly start, focus on a small number of things and be really, really great at them. Again, kind of this idea of be great. Um, you know, I um, a, have mentioned that I worked for this company, Kenamea in the sort of 2001 to 2004 period. And um, th- it, that was an incredibly challenging time in the market for any kind of software solution. I mean, there was no opportunity to do anything for the consumer, really. Um, and there were very few opportunities to do th- interesting things in enterprise software, but we were trying at Kenemea. Um And some horrible things happened. Beyond just the economy, um, we had tragedies like 9-11. And um, you know, uh, that particularly impacted Kenamea because we were developing software for the specifically for the financial services industry. That was going to be our kind of main go-to-market strategy. We're going to take, um, you know, this company was so... Esoteric. That I don't think I'm going to bother talking about what specifically we did, other than say it was financial services oriented. And um, the week that we were set to launch was the week of 9/11, and of course the that that entire disaster, the epicenter was in the heart of the American financial um, uh, industry, and um, and so we were faced now not with a, with an industry in disarray and um, a really challenging time generally in the economy and we did uh, the natural thing, which was we, we bobbed and weaved for three and a half years. We tried four different products and five different strategies and we would go and, and pitch uh, an enterprise and they would tell us about their you know, problems du jour and we would run home and try to figure out how to write software that would solve that problem. We weren't focused at all. Um, and I think, you know, candidly, Savage Beast, the, the company that was a the precursor to Pandora, suffered from that a little bit as well. And it was the same period. And I think it was a period um, where we had few choices other than to search for markets when, when so few dollars were changing hands around technology. Um, but Pandora, or Savage Beast, rather, um, had this music genome project, this kind of miraculous technique for matching music together. And, and they were going to market... Um, and talking to everybody that sat somewhere in the value chain between consumers and um, uh, music. So they went to Best Buy and Borders and Tower Records and AOL, and they said, tell us about your problems. And Best Buy says, well, you know, Borders is killing us because they have um, listening stations in the... uh, uh, in the stores, you know, we really need some solution for that. Could you help us, you know, build a kiosk so people can listen to music inside a Best Buy store before they buy it? And we would say, yeah, uh, sure. We don't really know anything about kiosks, but uh, but sure, we could do it. could it do music recommendation also. And they go, yeah, it can do music recommendation. And so we'd come back and, and we'd write uh, software, and we even went to IBM and had them design special touchscreen kiosks and the. Uh, the, the head graphic designer on the team had an industrial design background, and he designed the bracket that we used to mount it onto the uh, uh, onto the, uh, the the CD stands. And sort of, I actually went and physically installed them in fifteen Best Buys somewhere in the Midwest. Um, and uh, oh, there is something ma- sort of magic about Best Buy at three in the morning, but we don't have time for that story. Um, uh, uh, the um, and so the company was really again kind of putting its feelers out in lots of different directions. And one of the really transformational things that happened when we kind of revisioned the company in 2004 is we said, we're going to stop doing this. We're going to pick something that we're going to be great at, and we're going to focus on that like a laser beam. Um, And in the case of Pandora, that was to become the, um, the world's best radio station for connecting you with music that you'll love. Um, and we have stayed very, very true to that. I mean, we don't, we've never thought of ourselves as a website. We've never tried to be a social network for music. We've never gotten involved in music videos. We've never, you know, like, the list goes on and on and on and on of all of the things that are, are constantly trying to distract us from this mission of being the best radio solution in the world. Um, and you know, we're kind of constantly reminding each other of, like, it's still important even with 50 million users and, and a pretty good story right now to stay focused. There's so much left to do. Um, uh, uh, and so I think focus in all that you do in, in startups is incredibly important. Um, the next one is to be agile. Um, this is a word that's thrown around a lot in software development these days but I think it's a pretty good descriptor of, um, of the one of the best opportunities you have as an entrepreneur in a startup environment and that's that larger, more established entities can't move as quickly as you can. And um, success and scale and size all fight against this. And I would encourage you for the longest possible time, as you sort of start your own companies, to, to look for ways to stay agile. Um, Pandora's been... Well, the company's been around for six years, um, focused on this radio problem. We've been in, in the market for, um, for five years. Um, Uh, There's all kinds of of momentum. We have about 180 employees these days, Um, but we're still very focused on staying agile. And I'll be a little bit specific about how we do that. We don't have any long-term plans. Uh, We don't have any medium-term plans. I know what we're going to do for about the next three months, and beyond that, I can wave my hands a little bit, but I can't tell you anything specific about what comes next for Pandora. And that's very much on purpose. It's not for lack of ideas. I mean, we have a list of ideas that's, you know, a thousand lines long. Um, but um, we resist the temptation to take those ideas and put them on a calendar for the next year or 18 months. Um, and believe me, there are lots of dimensions of the business that would benefit from us doing that. Um, we're an advertising-supported company. And when a big um, uh, you know, consumer packaged goods company um, like Procter & Gamble comes to you and says, we want to run an ad campaign with you, Pandora. Well, they're going to talk to you about an ad campaign that's going to run nine months or 12 months from now. And so what they want to know is, what can we be doing with you in a year that will be novel, that will be new? And I have to tell them, I have no idea. They don't like that. Um, So that's just one example of many where people are going to want you to make long-term commitments to plans. Um, But there's so much benefit in resisting that temptation. I'll just give you an example from the last three months, and you can tell me whether or not you think a year ago we should have been committing this quarter to a bunch of things for Clorox. Um, So in January, we had the opportunity to um, partner with Apple for the iPad launch to be on stage with Steve Jobs at the iPhone OS 4 announcement to show off uh, background processing to launch uh, uh, with Ford in the Ford Fiesta um, for 2012 and to um, partner with Facebook to be one of the the sort of exemplar applications for um, their new open social graph uh, product. Um, All of those opportunities dropped in our lap in January and had to be done in April. So if we had and, you know, my product organization is about 40 people, and we can't do anything like everything that comes our way. Um, and so if six months ago and nine months ago and 12 months ago we'd been committing one little thing at a time to some long-term plan, I promise that we would be busy doing a whole bunch of sort of things that are no longer important to the business. So I'd encourage you to, to look for ways to stay agile, make, particularly around product, that you know, decisions at the last possible moment because you're going to constantly be accumulating new information about your business. And that really is the, um, uh, one of your great advantages against larger um, companies. They might have more, have more resources, but they don't have the ability to react as quickly um, as your young company will. Uh, next one is be decisive. Uh, my favorite Pets.com story is a little bit about being decisive and a little bit just funny, so I'll share it with you. Um, Julie Wainwright was the, the CEO, founder of, of, of Pets.com, and I had worked with her at, at Berkeley Systems on You Don't Know Jack. Um, and Julie is um, she's a force of nature. She's a brilliant woman and um, incredibly hardworking and very decisive. And um, when we were launching the company, we wanted to do something to grab a bunch of attention. And uh, we decided that the way we were going to do that is we were going to have a big sale when the, the site launched. Now keep in mind, we didn't have any infrastructure at all for this company we had the, the website you know had been under development for about three weeks. We had a uh, We had a, this little tiny warehouse that was in downtown San Francisco. If you know anything about logistics, the worst place in the world to put a distribution center is in downtown San Francisco. I mean just trying to get the trucks in and out were logistically impossible um, uh, and um, uh, But we decided that, that we wanted to have a half-off pet food sale. And I remember sitting in a conference room talking with Julie about the business rules that go along with such a thing. There's a whole bunch of decisions that you have to make about, like, well, a sale like this, how is it going to work? Who's going to be able to buy it? How much food are they going to be able to buy? And so on. And, and, uh, and that list of questions was long. We were all stressed out. There was way too much to do. And I think many of us in the room were using all of the unanswered questions as a way of, um, kind of a passive-aggressive way of saying, we're not ready to launch this company. Um, And and, uh, and I remember somebody saying, well, what's the business rule going to be for how much dog food you're going to be able to buy? And Julie, like that said, you're going to be allowed to buy $1,000 worth of dog food at 50% off. You can't buy any more than that. Um, I should mention one other thing the system we had for uh, applying shipping charges to, uh, to our orders was also incredibly mature. Um, for example, we didn't know how much any of the products in the catalog weighed. Um, <laughs> so uh, all we could do was offer, well, of course, this was, you know, 1999, so, of course, shipping is free. Uh, you know, so you, you have, we'd ship your dog food to you in the U.S. Postal Mail for free. Um, and then if you wanted it upgraded to UPS, which would take two or three days, we could do that for five dollars for your entire order, uh, and if you wanted it uh, delivered overnight, uh, we would do that uh, for fifteen dollars via um, Federal Express. Now, it turns out that a thousand dollars worth of dog food is about a metric ton. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> we—it's <laughs> true story. Uh, we uh, so we launched so we launch this thing, and it's not 24 hours till my cell phone rings, and it's a guy in our distribution center, and he says, "Tom, I've got uh, I've got an order here on the on the uh, you know on the, the pallet, uh, getting ready to get picked up by Federal Express, uh, where they will uh, they will put it on an airplane and send it to Hawaii." <laughs> um, Uh, It's a $1,000 order, almost to the penny. It weighs about a metric ton, and it's (laughs) going to cost (laughs) us
0: $15,000.
1: Happily, another decisive moment for Julie was that she had said that another one of the business rules was going to be that you couldn't buy food in this program if you were a dealer. It turned out that the person who had made this order was was themselves a pet store, um, in somewhere uh, uh, in Kauai. so we were able to, under the terms of the of the sale, cancel the order, um, and uh, you know, I think that you know the important part about that it wasn't a catastrophe. The phone rang. You know, we didn't spend the fifteen thousand dollars, even if we had. In the grand scheme of the you know hundred million plus dollars we lost, it wouldn't have been the end of the world. The, the, you know the. <laughs> um, you know the, the, the favor that Julie did the company in that moment, and in many, many moments um, uh, throughout its history, was that she was very decisive. She knew precisely what she wanted, and if she wanted to sell live fish, by God, we were gonna sell live fish. Which is another story that I don't have time for. <laughs> um, compare this to the, to the time that I spent at Apple. Um, you know, the, the company, as I said, was full of brilliant people. Um, but I was there in 1991 to 1995 when Steve Jobs wasn't around. And um, when arguably the company lost its way a little bit. Um, And uh, uh, there was a joke while I was there um, that I think sums up what was wrong with Apple in that era. And the joke was that Apple is the only place in the world where a vote of 1,000 to 1 is a tie. Um, And uh, clearly they're not voting anymore, or there's only one vote that matters or something. But... um, uh, (laughs) But that can happen, right? You get a bunch of smart people in a room, um, and uh, uh, you all kind of agree on some path, some solution, something that's going to you know, um, move the company forward. And then some smart person says, oh, you know, but we do that. Here's the downside. And all the other smart people go, oh, that's right. That's true. And we should, let's just have another meeting. Um, <laughs> and so we were in this kind of analysis paralysis at Apple, and, and, it, and it, it made it really, really hard to ship anything. To to end users, particularly on the software side, um, uh, and it meant we tried to do a lot of these kind of big kitchen sink releases where we tried to every you know kind of boil the ocean and solve every single end user problem all at once. Um, so be decisive. Let's see. Um, this one is really kind of about about going to market, um, and is really born principally out of my experience at at Pandora. People ask a lot, you know, how we were able to grow Pandora to its current listenership. Um, And the truth is, I don't really know. We don't have a marketing budget. Um, You know, we tried to build the best product that we could. Um, We tried to be really focused. We tried to be good at at just one thing and put all of our energy behind that. Um, But I don't know what made it resonate with people. Um, But I can tell you that Um, Pandora spreads by word of mouth. And I literally mean, I don't mean viral marketing. uh, I mean words and mouths. People sit around the Thanksgiving dinner table and say, hey, I found this thing that I love called Pandora. You should really check it out. Um, And we noticed this phenomenon very, very early. Um, And we decided to really embrace it and to try to um, have the tools that we would use in that process be um, words and mouths. So we, um, we've really tried to foster a direct and genuine relationship with the people who love Pandora. Um, early on, this meant, instead of a launch party, and having been through the dot-com era myself, uh, when somebody said, should we have a launch party, my first thought was, oh my God, no. Um, because that seemed like such the... Uh, a symbol of the excess of that era. Um, but as we talked about it, we came to this idea that we would have just a little get-together, kind of an informal um, gathering of, of, of folks in San Francisco who had d- discovered the product. And so we put a post up on the company blog, which was a very in thing to do then, and said, you know, come meet us for a few beers at this bar in downtown San Francisco and, um, uh, and talk to us about the music you're discovering on, on Pandora. So. We did that, and about 30 people showed up, and it was just this magical night for us. Um, uh, we probably spent 50 bucks uh, on pitchers of beer, but we met these remarkable people. And um, uh, we came back uh, the next day and said, wow, that was, that was really kind of magic. How can, we, how can we do more of this? And um, somebody said, well, you know, we all travel a fair bit and go and we meet with potential partners or... or um, uh, whatever. And maybe what we should do is, like, when I'm in Boston next, we'll put, a, we'll put another little uh, message on the, on the website that says, you know, we're going to be in Boston. If you want to come out and meet us for our coffee, we're going to be at this coffee shop. And so we started doing that. Um, uh, in particular, our founder, Tim Westergren, really embraced this role. And pretty soon he was purposefully making trips so that he could invite people to have coffee with him. Um, and those grew. The first one in New York, I think, was uh, five or six people literally in a Starbucks. I think the last one we did in New York City was almost 800 people in a big auditorium. But the format is basically the same. Tim sits down on a stool in front of whoever shows up and they talk about Pandora. He tells a little bit of his own personal story um, uh, and uh, and Tim has unbelievable stories about what it took to start this company um, and to get it to where it is today. And uh, and then he takes questions from the audience, and, and people stand up and say the most remarkable things about their love of music and what they're discovering on Pandora. And uh, uh, they're kind of magic knights, and um, they come from this desire for us to get out there and just genuinely interact. They're not scripted. They're not talking points. There's not a, an agenda behind you know, what we do other than this just desire to genuinely connect with our, um, uh, with our listeners. Another dimension that's uh, born out of similar thinking is that when you sign up for Pandora, like most companies, we send an automated email to you that says, you know, welcome to Pandora. Here's three things you probably want to know about the service. Um, uh, but we do a couple of things that I, are somewhat unique in my experience. Um, one is the email comes from Tim, our founder's, email address. It's really his email address. We send 50,000 or so of these a day. Not only does it come from his email address, the email actually says, please write me back and let me know what you think of the service. And so every day for the last five years, hundreds, some days, thousands of people write to Tim. And he tries to respond to all of them. And when he can't, he has a handful of people who help him. Um, but they don't respond pretending to be him. They say, hey, I'm Lucia, you know, I, you know, I picked up Tim's email, just wanted to write you back. And he has these unbelievable exchanges with people. And I'm, uh, I'm convinced that these emails, uh, you know, are the gasoline that we throw on the fire of the, 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 the kind of word of mouth behind Pandora, that, that you can... Oh, and it's just some of them are priceless, right? I mean, the people write back and say, "Oh, sure, I can write you back," and you know, you know, you know, whatever. And he responds, "Hey, how you doing?" And uh, yeah. uh, and I love the ones where they say, "Oh, you know, you played, you know, you played ABBA on my, you know, whatever station. How could you play ABBA on my station?" And Tim like jumps right in. He says, "Well, like, was it a good musical match? You know, you know, for the station?" And they go, "Well, yeah, but it's, you know, I don't know, but this ABBA," and then you go back and forth, and, you know. Uh, by the uh, by, the end the person Tim actually has a real story about this, right, where the, the punchline of the story is the last email says, "Oh my God, I like Java." <laughs> um, so uh, you know, take those opportunities to to you know to engage with. I can't believe I sign up for these these new services all the time, right? To check out what other people are doing, and you know, the first email you get from them, the first thing you see before you even open it is the email address is like "Do not reply at forshizzle.fr" or whatever, and. Uh, and it's like, really? Why would you not want people to reply? Um, so, you know, uh, and this this whole philosophy goes back to the whole kind of clue chain manifesto thing um, of, you know, people recognize a human voice. Like, try to be human. Like, you know, when we when we put copy on the website, like, you know, it's. We spent all of our energy like trying to like pound the marketing speak out of it. It's like, oh, no, that I you know I like that little turn of a phrase, but like, how do we how do we uh, how do we rewrite this? How would you say it at, at Thanksgiving dinner? How would you talk to this person like you know they're your friend as opposed to someone you're selling to? It's really hard to do, um, but I'd encourage you to uh, to make that investment. All right, last one, and this is somewhat ironic since I just spent the last forty five talk- minutes talking about myself. Um, it's. Uh, Be humble. Um, You know, if you spend, you know, six years of your life um, being decisive, focused on being great, being focused, um, working hard under incredibly stressful situations, um, the only way to come out of the other side of it, with any friends at all, and any sense of joy in how you spend your days, is to, you know, be humble. Hire people that are wonderful, that aren't jerks, that you know, realize that when you find success, like, it's not about you. I mean, the success of Pandora has nothing to do with me, I mean, despite my 45 minutes. Um, uh, you know, it has to do with our listeners, it has to do with the wonderful people that we've hired. Um, you know, uh, I think that there is a, you know, can be in Silicon Valley a, a you know, a kind of cult of personality things that develops around these, these companies, and, you know, um, our founder, Tim, who is the, the face of the company, is the most affable you know, humble person that I've ever worked with. And he's a constant sort of inspiration to me to kind of try to remember that, you know, you know, we're out here trying to solve problems. It's not about sort of, you know, um, uh, uh, creating a legend around you as an individual. It's it's around, um, you know, helping people do things that they could never do before. So, um, but by all means, if you get a chance to come talk about your career, do it. It's fun. <laughs> um, uh so that's, that's, that's what I prepared for today, and by some miracle, it's almost exactly 45 minutes. Um, and uh, uh, my guess is that you have lots of questions, um, um, and, uh, and, and we've touched on lots of things, but I certainly am here to talk about Pandora specifically, if, if you'd like to hear more about that. I'm sure some of you came to hear more about Pandora. Yeah? Uh, so you guys have to hire and pay actual positions we may be we 're one of four organizations on the planet that hire and pay or uh, musicians, which is part of why it works <laughs> um, it 's like us and Starbucks and um, now the uh, yeah so we have um, we have a team of about twenty five part time musicians who do the music genome analysis work um, and uh, uh, many of them have been with the company almost as long as I have um, it 's a very coveted job because it has uh, well, frankly, it pays well, um, has great benefits, um, and uh, it's incredibly flexible and fits the lifestyle of a professional musician really well. Like many of the musicians who work for us are touring musicians themselves, um, and, uh, and so they have this flexibility to come and, and work for us um, and then uh, uh, to go off on the road for a tour for several months and come back. Um, so there's a long waiting list of people to get in. And the reality is, though, um, in the grand scheme of all of the costs associated with running Pandora, the Music Genome Project itself is kind of a drop in the bucket these days. Yeah? Um, you mentioned your experience at Pets.com was foundational toward your later career. Mm-hmm. What was it about that experience that made it so foundational? You know, um, one of the neat things about Pets.com was that our... Um, our principal uh, investors, the first $50 million, if you can believe it, came from Amazon. And Amazon had this incredible focus on customer service, Um, and, you know, I think living through that 18 months, I learned all kinds of things, learned lots of of, uh, ways not to do things. Um, uh, I worked really hard, I had a team that worked really hard. Managed through a really scary period, but I think one of the big things I took away was like really focus on your customers, like you know care about them, understand that you're there to serve them, and and the folks at Amazon really instilled that um, in all of us. Um, uh, So I think I walked away um, with a tremendous sense of of kind of how to put the customer at the center of everything that you do. Yeah. Did you say that there's a trade-off? like you were, uh, you were talking about at the original company when the Best Buy opportunity came up and you guys followed that path. Uh, and even though it's straight from your original path, it could have been kind of the next big thing and the way the company could have progressed in the future. So do you think that you should always stay true to like the core competencies of your company or explore the opportunities that come your way? You know, I think you know, I think it's really important to know what you want to be the best in the world at. Um, And you want to be kind of agile within that momentum. Um, You know, we wanted to be the best in the world and still want to be at the best in the world at at kind of introducing you to music that you'll love through this really easy, serendipitous mechanism. Um, And uh, so... There are opportunities that come our way all the time that have potentials to be big markets. You know, uh, uh, one example is talk. I mean, you know, radio, music radio is is, is just a fraction of of, of um, the overall story. Talk radio is a, certainly a huge category too, and there's probably interesting personalized things to do in talk radio for Pandora, and it may be something that we do, um, you know, at some point in the history of the company. Um, but right now, we know pretty clearly that we're a music company, and, and and we're really focused on on doing that well. And a great way to stay focused within a vision is to find metrics that make your successes seem small. Um, and uh, you know, uh, for example, you know we have 50 million uh, listeners, you have 21 million on mobile. We have. 47% of internet radio, but we are like 1.2% of all radio hours in the US. So I really try to focus my team on that 1.2% number um, and remind them that without changing anything, without deviating at all from our focus, you know, we've got, you know, 98% of the market still in front of us. And Clear Channel has 20%. So it's not like you can't, it's not like there aren't examples of companies that get really big within that category. So um, uh, that helps. Talk about the ways that Pandora went about iterating on how it monetized the service. Yeah. Because I think there's probably lots so of Yeah, there's a story there for sure. Um, so, when we launched, um, and this is a chapter of the company that we don't talk about a lot um, uh, because it wasn't very long lived. When we launched, uh, so the company raised some money in the, um, the spring of 2004. Um, that's when Joe joined, by coincidence, where I, it's when I joined as well. Uh, And we spent about a year kind of exiting the kiosk business and the API business and all the B2B stuff that we'd done and figuring out what kind of consumer software company we wanted to be. And it was then about a year after that that funding had come in that we were able to to launch the first version of Pandora. And so um, as a consequence, we had spent a fair bit of the money that we had raised. Um, And uh, and music services, uh, you may have heard, are very expensive to run. They have high... Uh, licensing costs, they have bandwidth costs, of course the overhead of the of the um, the operation itself and so and many of us, a bit battle scarred from the the dot com era, which was so focused on get big and monetization will come, um, decided that we wanted to launch the company with this idea that um, it could sustain itself um, uh, relatively well from the beginning um, and um, and we decided that the way, the only real path that was open to us was subscription. Because you can't really build a, an advertising business when you don't have any audience. You know, advertisers buy reach, you know, they, they know you know. Uh, so there was not going to be any short-term monetization opportunity um, around um, advertising. That was always part of the sort of medium-term plan, if you liked. We thought maybe we'd go for about a year and then start turning advertising on as an ad-supported free option. So we had a, a spreadsheet, another one. If I was going to do eight, I'd, I'd say have a spreadsheet. Um, uh, that, that described how the business was going to work, what the costs were going to be, how many people we needed to convert to subscription to, um, to kind of um, ramp towards profitability. And um, uh, we launched things, and it worked out exactly as we imagined it would. We converted people to subscription at a, pretty much exactly the same rate that was in the spreadsheet. Except there's one key difference, and that was people found the service much, 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 much faster than we imagined. So rather than there being you know 50,000 people who found Pandora in the first month, half a million people found Pandora in the first month. Um, and when you're gonna churn off you know 98% of fifty fifty thousand, 50000 it's a pretty different feeling than churning off 98% of half a million when ultimately you want to get to this reach play that's advertising oriented. And so we um, we started looking at a model then that was advertising-supported much, much, much sooner. And um, about that time, we were, we were looking at raising a little bit more money. And um, uh, one of the, uh, the potential investors started modeling out this opportunity to, do, uh, to run Pandora as an advertising-supported business sooner rather than later. And um, uh, they came to the conclusion that that was really the company that they wanted to invest in, was this advertising-oriented company. We, with uh, uh, the benefit of... of their investment were able to accelerate our plans and I remember after we closed that round of funding it was um, a couple of, of a days before a board meeting and we all knew that the, the, the newly expanded board was going to want to hear about how you're going to turn Pandora from a, from a subscription service into an ad supported free service. And um, I uh, had thought about this a little bit and put some plans together on the product side and, and had come back to the, the rest of the management team and said I think in three weeks we can take this company that we had built entirely as a subscription service and turn it into an ad-supported service. Um, you know, we need to get an ad server, we need to make it possible to register for the, in the system without having a credit card on file, like all of these things. Um, there's a bunch of work to do. Um, and, but I was pretty proud of myself. I thought three weeks, that's pretty fast. Um, you know, we weren't supposed to do this for another six months. I was sort of patting myself on the back as I walked into the board meeting and we t- you know, rolled out this plan to them and the board said, wait a minute, isn't there a free trial already I said, well, yeah, there's a free trial. And they're like, well, why don't you just make the free trial last forever? I was like, well, you know, I, of course, had 15 reasons why that was not a good idea, not the least of which is we didn't have any ad-serving infrastructure at all. But they're like, but you're not going to have any advertisers. I'm like, well, that's a fair point. Um, uh, so, so I said three weeks, and I remember literally they said, we think a nanosecond is the right answer. Um, uh, so went back, sharpened the pencils, and figured out how to do it in three days over a weekend. And three days later, we launched ad-supported free Pandora um, without an ad server. Um, two things happened. It's the one time we were caught flat-footed from a scaling standpoint. I was sure that because we had this 10-hour uh, you know, free trial, that word of mouth was already really strong on Pandora. Hey, try this thing. You don't have to do anything. There's no commitment. You know. Um, and uh, uh, turns out, free, really, really different than 10 hours free. Um, you know, it was like that that, uh, that ad where the, the dot-comers were sitting around watching the orders go click, 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 uh, click, that, that Monday, um, things got really out in front of us for, for a few hours. and um, uh, But that was sort of a good problem to have, and we quickly got it back under control and um, have been growing at a, a pretty remarkable clip since. Um, uh, but then the phone rang uh, in our CEO's office, and... It was Apple. Apple said, "This is, you know, three days in. Uh, this is great that your ads are ported free now. We'd like to be your first advertiser." This was November of, of uh, two thousand and five. Um, in fact, we'd like to buy out all of your ad inventory for the months of November and December. Um, <laughs> so Joe says, "Oh, it's so great that you called." Comes into my little my little office and says. Uh, Apple wants to be our first advertiser. well, that's funny because we don't have an ad server, um, or or a website that was designed with any place to put an ad. Um, and uh, he said, "Well, do you think we could do it?" I hate to turn Apple down. And I said, "Yeah, we could probably do it. You know, how hard could it be? We'll just, you know, we'll hard code their ad onto the onto the homepage." <laughs> um, uh, and so we did that. We hard-coded their ad onto the homepage in like the worst possible place ever. If you saw screenshots of Pandora from this period, it's like, why would you put an ad there? It's like, you know, because the whole site was not designed for ads at all. And, um, but then, you know, how advertising is, right? Particularly the company um, that's as sort of meticulous about their marketing images, Apple. They, they changed the campaign a lot over the course of, of that, that two months. And so they would call and say, we have new creative for you. Um, you know, can you tra- traffic the tags in your ad server? And... Um, uh, and we 'd have to push out an entirely new version of the website to you know our fifty servers or whatever and uh, and they called all the time and it was like just one fire drill after another to change these ads um, so uh, so yeah, we became an ad supported service and really focused um, uh, on ad supported solutions sort of exclusively for um, for about uh, four years and then um, uh, we started talking about um, other monetization opportunities and I started thinking about, well, there's that old thing we tried with subscription and it really wasn't that interesting because only 1% of people subscribe. I was like, wait a minute, how many people are on the site every day? I'm like, oh, wait, a lot. You know, 1% of a big number is is a pretty interesting number when you multiply it times $36. And so uh, we have a pretty robust subscription business now that we've been focusing on in addition to our advertising business for the last, eight months or so. It's still you know, um, it might have been 5% of our overall revenues last year. It might be 10% of our revenues this year. Advertising will always be the principal monetizer for Pandora. And, And in many ways, I think it will always be where we put a disproportionate amount of our energy, because that's where our audience is. You know, One or two percent of our audience is going to subscribe. It's great that that generates 10 percent of the monetization potential. But what we really care about, care about is you know, how do we make 150 million people you know, experience Pandora, and you do that through ad-supported free. Great.
0: I want to thank you so much for a fabulous event. This was terrific. Thanks so much.